Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. So, Charles, here we are, our first episode. Yeah, I can't quite believe it. Yeah, very excited. Very, very excited. And also particularly excited about our first ever guest. So welcome, Stuart Mitchell. Absolutely delighted to be the first ever guest on the podcast. <laughs> Have you done many podcasts before, Stuart? I've done one for the Institute. That was a while ago. Oh, it would be interesting to see how this one compares. <laughs> so welcome, Stuart. Stuart has 30 years experience working with some of the largest and best known international insurers. He helps insurers manage reserving and other risks as well as acting as an independent expert on a number of Part 7 business transfers. He's also a partner here at LCP and an avid Chelsea football fan. So, Stuart, we're going to be talking about ESG today. And of course, there's more than one ESG in the world. As an actuary, I grew up thinking ESG stood for Economic Scenario Generator, but I think that meaning of ESG is long since being consigned to history by a much bigger movement called environmental, social and governance issues. And I'm very pleased that we're talking to you about this issue because I know it's something that you've done a lot of thinking about and, of course, something that's affecting all of the firms that you deal with. So, I mean, perhaps to kind of get us into the topic, could you just tell us a little bit about what ESG is in the context of insurance and how we kind of got to the point where it was such an important issue? Sure, Charles. So I guess ESG, as you say, is a relatively new thing for insurers to be thinking about, especially now. It's been around for a few years, and I guess it first came to the fore for insurers in terms of large cat losses. So obviously, climate change has been around for a long time. And every time there's a big cat loss, it's is this because of climate change or not? And no one knows because they're random. But there's no doubt that has been a high frequency and severity of cat losses over the last few years. So that's where insurers first started thinking about ESG issues from a loss point of view, profitability point of view. But I think in the m- most recent years, there's definitely been a big acceleration in insurers thinking about ESG issues, not only from a loss point of view, but from a society point of view, what kind of insurance risks should they cover and which ones shouldn't they? What kind of insurance companies should they give cover to in terms of how well they treat their staff and pay their staff? And obviously, the governmental issues have been around for a long time. Um, I don't think there's been as much change in that side of things as in the E N, the S of ES and G. Thanks. So I guess what examples of cases where maybe in particular environmental issues have started to change the insurance industry? There's lots of them and becoming more and more frequent. So I've picked out a few examples, which I think kind of illustrate the wider thinking in this area. So a core celebrity at the moment is coal mining Australia, the Carmichael project, which is proposed by Adani. This is a big industry, you know, Australian coal industry, $15 billion industry. But because of environmental pressure, groups are putting pressure on insurers not to cover this project. 
and we've seen a lot of big names, big name insurers refusing to provide cover for this project. That's a good example. Lloyd's has just recently announced that they're going to phase out their cover of similar coal projects. Also, oil sands, where oil is recovered from kind of sand. That's quite an intensive process. And also Arctic expeditions and exploration. So Lloyd's is kind of phasing out their cover for those kind of projects. And a very recent one over the last few weeks, there was a captive proposed for Lloyd's. Lloyd's is very big into trying to kind of increase its bandwidth in terms of business written and are keen to get captives within Lloyd's. And there's one proposed for pipelines. And that's plans for that have now been shelved, I guess, over wider concerns about these big pipelines going for long distances across maybe protected territories. And so I think those are just three recent examples of where this is a real issue where insurers are considering which risks to cover and which ones not to. Is it universal across the insurance industry that firms are walking away from covering these sorts of risks? Or are there some insurers who are still interested in covering them? It's interesting. Insurers are driven by profit at the end of the day, in most part. And rate increases for non-coal projects are around 10% at the moment. For coal projects, they're around 40%. So it's a marketplace. Some insurers are going to go, hmm, especially in the back of lots of losses over the last few years and COVID recently, that's going to be attractive business for some people. And those covers will still be placed. It may be there's more of a shift to the government. So I don't know in the Carmichael project I mentioned before, if there's no commercial coverage available, maybe the government will step in and provide some cover so that project can go ahead if, if that's what the Australian government wants. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned governments because one argument that I've heard from an insurer is that if governments decide that insurers should not cover these risks, they'd be very happy to go along with that, but they don't necessarily feel like it's the responsibility of the insurance market to lead on deciding whether these sorts of risks will be covered. A bit of a sidetrack, but one of the most valuable things I learned in the actuarial exams was about governments and everything they do, every single decision they take is whether it's more or less likely to get them elected at the next election. <laughs> so that's how governments think. And we've seen that, dare I say, in the UK over the last year or so. So if there is a groundswell of public opinion against providing cover for these things, pressure will be brought on governments maybe not to do that. So do you really see it as policyholders or just citizens and countries are going to be the driving force then behind these changes continuing to happen? It's a difficult one, Jess. I think it's a bit of both. It's a bit push me, pull you, if you remember your Dr. Doolittle. So it needs to be kind of worldwide action, concerted action together. So at the moment, you've got the kind of the early adopters or the early adopter polluters, as it were, generally the West, the US, us, etc., who have caused the problem in the first place, a majority of the problem, versus not developed countries, but countries that have developed more recently, so China, India, who are now causing or increasing the problem. And they're saying, well, you kind of started it, you've caused it, it's not our fault. We're only contributing a little bit to the overall problem. So governments will act in different ways. We've seen that over the last few years politically, more kind of insular governments coming and going. 
I'd like to think it will be driven by policyholders and generally public opinion. I think that is a big driver, but that can only do so much unless governments where maybe policyholders and the public opinion is less kind of <laughs> taken on board, shall we say. That can only do so much and then it's the government to step in and take a view. And obviously the big discussion at the moment in this area is about environmental risks and should insurers cover firms who are polluting the planet. But I suppose an emerging issue and maybe something that's gaining in importance would be social factors. So the S in ESG. How do you see that potentially playing out in the insurance world over the coming years? I don't want to pick on Boohoo, for instance, but they've had some bad press recently about how they're paying minimum wage or below minimum wage. And that's an example where they haven't behaved too well from a societal point of view. So insurers, I think, will look more and more into how companies treat their workers when they're providing insurance cover. I don't think insurers are any different to most industries now. I think most industries will have a modern slavery kind of statement on the websites and stuff. So I think insurers will just play their part in making sure that when they partner or work with other companies that they are treating their staff correctly. So I think it's less of an issue for insurers than the environmental concerns, but certainly insurers will be thinking about that, either from a point of view of providing insurance cover for companies and also just generally who they partner with for other things. On the point of providing insurance for these companies, is it going to be easy for insurers to kind of get the detail and information on those kind of social factors in order to reflect that? As I say, in the UK, there's a requirement to have a modern slavery statement. And most companies now will put policies on their website. And increasingly, we're seeing it with our suppliers both ways that you're asking them questionnaires. Do you have a statement on this? Do you pay minimum wage or a living wage or whatever that is? So I guess if you're hard-nosed about it, if they can't provide the information, you don't do business with them, is one route you could take. I think the other way that insurers can also put pressure in this area is with their investments. So insurers tend to be fairly short-tailed, so they don't have kind of long-dated investments in the most part. They're limited in what they can invest in terms of infrastructure and things like that. But certainly they do have big piles of cash they need to hang on to pay claims and therefore they can target who they invest in from those societal kind of points of view. And I know Generali have just announced a 10 billion fund aimed at investing responsibly from an ESG point of view. 10 billion sounds a big number and it is a big number, but Generali don't know how many billions of assets they have, but it's a step in the right direction. I suppose we've approached this so far from thinking about the ethical point of view and how insurers can be a force for good in, let's say, not offering insurance company to unethical firms. But I suppose there may be another sort of a more pure risk angle there as well, whereby I suppose a company that's looking for insurance and which has poor social policies might be more likely to end up being sued by someone and therefore might be a poorer risk for an insurer. So could it become a major underwriting factor? Absolutely, Charlotte. And I'm sure it is. There's been a few examples recently where these kind of sweatshops have ended up in, in fires or buildings collapsing. So if companies are treating their staff badly from a societal point of view, there's no doubt that health and safety budgets are not going to be met or maintenance is not going to be done as regularly as it should be. So definitely it should be an underwriting factor when looking to provide cover. I guess that's what we've seen so far today. 
in this area. Which of these changes do you think we'll see more of in the future? And do you expect to see any kind of new developments in the coming years? For me, it's all about the environmental bit, the E bit. As I said before, the S bit, there's only limited amounts that insurers can do. And the governmental piece has always been there. And I don't see much change there. But the E bit, so a couple of things that have come out recently. So there's the NZIA, which is going to be launched at the COP26 conference later this year. So this is the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, where there's eight of the biggest insurers, Allianz, Munich, Swiss Re, all those kind of insurers have come together to commit to being net zero by a certain time. So that's something that will officially launch later this year. And I'm noticing in Lloyd's Beasley is just announcing a new consortium starting next year to look at ESG risks. So this whole area is just really gathering momentum and is set to continue and, in fact, be more pressure put on insurers. And for any of our listeners that have not heard of COP26, could you give a quick... It's the climate change Bino get-together that we're going to have later <laughs> this year in Glasgow, I think. So I think we're hosting yes. it. So it's where the governments around the world come together to hopefully commit to climate change targets. But we mentioned before the, the kind of clash of philosophy of governments and blame game, who should do what. But that's in Glasgow later this year. So it seems clear that these sorts of changes in practice by insurers are probably for the good of society as a whole. That seems fairly obvious. Could making these sorts of changes be good for business for an insurer as well? It's a difficult one, that, Charles. So with diversity, it's a good thing to do from two angles. A, because it's the right thing to do. And B, because diverse companies perform better. There's evidence to show that. This is a more difficult one because I mentioned before those kind of coal type projects with 40% rate increases. So if you want to be, if we call it unethical about this, you could chase those risks where there's less capacity and make more money. And that just might be how you want to play things, but it's not for the good of society. And you could argue those companies are behaving unethically, but it is a marketplace unless governments ban people from providing cover then there are insurers who can continue to profit from that business. It's not as clear-cut as the diversity angle from an outperformance point of view. I can see that as quite complex. I suppose one angle I was thinking of was that a possible benefit to insurers of being more conscious of the environmental impact of their insureds or the social impact of the insureds is actually just insurers getting to know their insureds better. And through that process, they might get a better handle on the different degrees of risk that different insureds present. I don't know whether that's enough to sell the concept, but certainly we know that within specialist markets, often you kind of hear that a problem that insurers face is that they don't really know a huge amount about the organization they're insuring, maybe because it's done through a cover holder or because for competitive reasons, you can't ask a million questions in the proposal. I think action needs to come centrally, I think, to drive things. So, for instance, Lloyd's is a good example. Over the last year or so, we've seen Extinction Rebellion were gluing hands to the front of Lloyd's, which makes news at 10. So that's not a good look for Lloyd's. Then there's a whole load of coal dumped outside Lloyd's. False coal, not real coal, because that would be good from an environmental <laughs> group. And then Extinction Rebellion, there was a spin-off Insurance Rebellion. So they let a stink bomb off outside Lloyd's. And then Prince Charles is there 
a few weeks ago launching an insurance task force. So all these things are aimed at getting publicity on the news and therefore Lloyd's is taking action centrally. I talked before about winding down the kind of cover given for coal and North Sands and stuff like that. So I've no doubt that those types of incidents kind of drive governments or kind of, in this case, Lloyd's, to provide a lead to the insurers within the marketplace. So I think that's a much more powerful way of change to be driven centrally in a marketplace like that, as opposed to individual insurers. Interesting. Who will have their own kind of agenda to do things. I find it a bit surprising that insurance is such a lightning rod for this type of protest, when probably the amount of money involved in the finance of, let's say, coal projects or the finance of companies with poor human social records probably dwarfs the size of the insurance deals involved. Yeah, I guess because it can stop the project. So if you've got a project and you want to kind of protest against it, then I'm not saying the insurers are soft touch, but it's an obvious target to put pressure on insurers not to look bad in the face for their policyholders or stakeholders. Don't get me wrong, I think the protests are still going on around the world. I mean, go back a few years and Greenpeace were kind of attaching themselves to boats and all things like that. That seems to have gone away a little bit, maybe just because it's easier to target insurers. Or they just see they do have the power to bring a stop to these projects if they can't get the insurance. I mean, another example is coming out of lockdown with festivals and concerts. Insurers weren't willing to step in and provide insurance for Glastonbury. And unless the government steps in and provides some cover, then the events didn't go ahead. So that's the kind of the power that insurers have for these kind of projects. I suppose another angle that strikes me on this is that it's a tough time to be an insurer from the point of view of public image. And it seems to have never been more important for insurers to visibly be seen as good corporate citizens. And what I'm thinking of there is some of the sort of claims disputes that arose in the wake of COVID. And I was quite surprised how few insurers ended up really looking like the bad guy because of the stance that they took on paying certain COVID-related claims, never mind the legal angles and what the different interpretations of the wordings were. It very much seemed to me like society was saying insurers need to just pay up and not plead the details of very opaque contract wordings. I guess the danger of insuring PR and media firms and then not (laughs) paying their claims is that they then know how to make people know about that. And so without naming names, you could see one company was, even if it wasn't directly about them, they were mentioned in every COVID article about claims not being paid. So yeah, I mean, that's a very specific example of where insurers came across as bad guys. Lloyd's kind of mantra for a long time is we always pay valid claims. And certainly some brands have been tarnished in that example. And you can see that going forward. So these kind of big mega pipelines or coal mines or kind of exploration in the Arctic, you can just see that anyone who insures those is a target for public opinion. Could that mean that, let's say, uh, someone listening to this podcast is a CRO of an insurance firm? Are they likely to be thinking harder about these potential reputational risks than they might have done pre-COVID in light of how badly some insurers have fared in the public eye? All the kind of projects we're talking about, it's obvious that you can see why they are a target. 
but then if you take the lead or a big line on the world's largest aircraft, that's a less obvious target, but you are contributing to pollution of the earth, even though the planes are much better, more efficient now and less polluting. As an insurer, I don't know how much ethical consideration you give to insuring airlines. And then where do you stop? Car fleets, trains, kind of we need insurance to allow society to function. Who draws a line at which projects or insured risks are valuable to society and which ones aren't? That's a very difficult one. And I'm not sure how you draw the line. Yeah, the airline industry is an interesting one because over many, many years, the insurance industry has not made a lot of money out of insuring airlines, have they? No. Plus, as you say, arguably helped to enable a very polluting industry. We've started to see this change happen, but do you expect it to really ramp up over the next two to three years? Or do you still expect actually some of these changes are going to take five to 10, 10 years plus to actually properly start being fully embedded and, and being more commonplace? There's kind of two elements to it. I mean, the long term is everyone's talking about net zero and whether that's by 2030 or 2040 or 2050, that's a long way away. And it's difficult for me to imagine that far ahead because I won't be here for a start. But it's difficult to change your mindset from what I do now today does matter in the future. That's a kind of long term consideration. But the short term is, yeah, absolutely. The last few years, this has become a massive hot topic. And you see in Knowing we were doing this podcast, I've been keeping my eye out for things. And there's pretty much something most days on the ESG for insurers, initiatives or big projects in the news or anything. It's a big, big area for insurers. And that pace is only gathering. So, yeah, there'll be lots of activity over the next few years, although some of them, those initiatives will have long-term aims, 2050 and beyond, maybe. Well, I think it's great that we've started our podcast series looking at this topic because I've been amazed by how big it's got in such a short time, and it feels like exactly the right thing to focus on. What is the one thing that you would like listeners to take away from all this? Biggest concern is that we don't, as a planet group of people, kind of agree and take action quickly enough to stop this. A couple of years ago, everyone agreed that we can't have the temperature going up by more than a few degrees. And I think even within the last two years, all the indicators are saying that's nothing's changing. In fact, it might be getting worse. So I think my worry is there's not enough people who realise that we need to do or realise it, but for their own interest, choose not to follow the right path. And in fact, kind of take steps to benefit from other people trying to do the right thing. So we need some fundamental shifts. Now, whether that's coming up with hydrogen-powered vehicles or, or stopping eating meat, I don't think what we're doing so far is enough. And I guess, do you have any suggestions for what individuals could do to help? It's very difficult what we can do as individuals to make a change. But I would encourage people with your own insurance, your house insurance, your car insurance, just next time your policy comes up for renewal, just think about who the insurance is with. Do a bit of background digging. Do you think they're doing enough to help on the ESG front? And I know that's very difficult because... You might end up paying a bit more for your insurance and you might not be able to do that. But I think, yeah, in terms of an insurance point of view, just at least think about who's providing your insurance and do you think they're a good citizen, as it were. And perhaps taking it from the other angle, for people working within insurance firms, 
let's say, in, in risk management or actuarial or even in finance and senior management, what would be the key thing that you would suggest they take away from this discussion? The risk profile of their insureds. So who are we insuring? What is our position on becoming net zero? And if that doesn't fit in with your personal kind of views, then maybe go to a more ethical insurer or industry. Thanks so much, that Stuart. That has been a really interesting, insightful conversation. I guess just something slightly fun to end on. What is one thing that we should know about you that we wouldn't necessarily find on your CV? Well, there's quite a few, but probably (laughs) ones I wouldn't want to share on the podcast. I'll go with I made medical history by breaking both thumbs in the same skiing accident. It's called Gamekeeper's Thumb, but usually because gamekeepers broke their thumbs with shotguns. (laughs) But to do both at the same time had not been seen before. And was this one of those accidents that's related to how you were holding the straps on the ski poles? Exactly. No one had ever told me, don't put the straps between your thumb and the rest of your hand. (laughs) Otherwise, you fall, you break your thumb. And I also broke my collarbone. I had a three-week judo career, which involved (laughs) fainting, getting two black eyes and breaking a collarbone in my three-week career. But that's it. No more broken bones other than those. One thing that I do know about you, Stuart, but maybe not everyone in the wider market knows, and I think they ought to know, is that is your deep and abiding love of Brewdog. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And ESG is quite a hot topic for them at the moment. So they've certainly been in the news recently for not treating their staff too well. So it's disappointing as a shareholder to see that, but they do seem to be addressing it and genuinely want to address it. So I hope to see progress in that area. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. Also, we would like to give a special thanks to Nisha Gogner for helping to get this podcast up and running. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.